So again, sitting comfortably. In the course of this winter here um, at Spirit Rock on the Monday nights, we've started to go through a series of the fundamental teachings of Buddhism called the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the Buddha's description of those practices or understandings that lead us to an awakened life and an awakened heart. And we began a few weeks ago speaking about the first uh, step of this path of awakening, which was right understanding. Seeing that in this human realm there is both joy and sorrow, pain and suffering on one side and beauty and majesty on the other. There's birth and death and light and dark and that our life is woven of these opposites. And also understanding that in the midst of this human life where we have a measure of sorrow and a measure of joy, to sense that within us there are possibilities of meeting this human experience with much greater compassion and with much greater understanding to sense the potential for awakening in our heart. And then the second step of wise aspiration or attitude is that if we wish to fulfill that potential, which is our own Buddha nature of great compassion and wakefulness, the spirit or attitude required is one of openness, discovery, seeing clearly what is actually the truth of our life and this world we've been born into, um, discovering how things actually are and being honest about that. Um, And with that discovery, that quality of what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind, um, beginning to learn how we get caught and entangled and also then learning how we can release the places that we're caught and really be free. So the next three steps for the tonight and the following two weeks, the next three steps in this Eightfold Path are the steps that are traditionally called right speech, right action, and right livelihood, or wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And what they speak about is the basic compassion that is necessary for us as human beings if we are to live a spiritual path. And that basic compassion means in our words and in our actions that we intend to not harm other beings, that our intention is to care for both ourselves and others. In the simplest possible way, it's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing and lying. It's sort of hard to get the mind to quiet down. But more than that, if we are to live from this Buddha nature, from the most beautiful qualities that we already know exist within us, it's not just a question of meditating or having a particular attitude or understanding. We have to actually embody that as we move through our lives. And that becomes the foundation of a spiritual life. Otherwise, it's just good ideas. As William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. So it's not about having some great, oh, I have a great Eastern philosophy, but actually how we live moment to moment. As a um, member of a teaching community here as well, um, when we have sometimes had our teacher's council and we talk about the practices that we work with, um, working with this step of the Eightfold Path, wise speech or right speech, is one of the practices that the teachers also say, boy, this is, this is the place that my practice really grows and also this is the place that I really need to learn to practice more fully. It's a very fruitful place. Now, in one of the Buddhist teachings, 
This quality of wise speech is described as a factor, a necessary factor of enlightenment. How could that be? What does that mean? We spend so much time talking. As as human beings, the, the, the gift that's given to this particular incarnation that animals and so forth don't seem to have, maybe dolphins or whales a little bit, is speech. And an awful lot of our words are done on automatic pilot. I mean, the thoughts behind them are also an automatic pilot. That's why we become mindful of what's going on in our inner life. But then the words come out, and they can be destructive, or they can perpetuate delusion and keep ourselves and others asleep, or they can bring awakening. To be on a spiritual journey or to fulfill our Buddha nature is to discover that we can awaken in every dimension of life. And words are an important part of our human dimension. The poet Muriel Ruckheiser puts it this way. She said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. The stories we tell ourselves, the thoughts that generate this world. Now imagine what our society would be like, this modern world, if people spoke the truth. You almost couldn't imagine it, could you? I mean, it's so far from modern experience. This is from Ram Dass. I went as a representative of the hippie community of San Francisco to meet the Hopi Indian elders to arrange a Hopi hippie bee-in in Grand Canyon. <laughs> this was the 60s, of course. We wanted to honor their tradition and affirm our common respect for the land. Four elders sat at a kitchen table in an adobe building on four chairs. There were no more chairs when I got there, so I sat on the floor kneeling opposite them so I could see over the table, but under it as well. The youngest of the Hopi elders was 65. The eldest, 110. I could see their hands on their knees under the table. They looked like roots in the earth. There was something so absolutely connected about the whole quality of their presence, connected to that earth. We discussed what it might mean to bring together these different groups and generations of Americans. Then they told me about the difficulties they'd been having with white people. One of their braves had recently become involved in an auto accident with a truck from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The BIA truck had been at fault, but the next day the BIA found a liquor bottle nearby and claimed the brave had been drinking. We called the young man in, said one of the elders, and we asked him if he'd been drinking. One of them looked at me and said, he replied no. And then this elder looked me in the eyes quite directly and very simply said, and he speaks truth. A chill went through me at that moment. It wasn't just that I believed him or any suspicion I might have had was immediately silenced. I experienced a kind of primordial memory of a time when you just spoke truth, a time when relationships were built on trust. That's the way it was done because that's just how people were. The time when a person's word was really gold, when it mattered what we said so much. Working for many years as a psychologist, seeing people in therapy, one of the questions I'll ask often at a certain point in our interaction or dialogue, somebody will go along and be telling me a story, and and I'll pause for a second and I'll say, is that really true? And then the person has to stop and look inside and say, you know, I've always believed that, I've said it, I mean, somebody else told me that, but is that really true? Because there's a place in us that really knows so deeply. Now, we don't tell the truth for a lot of different reasons. One being that we're out of touch with it in the speed of this culture. We're so busy and the voices around us have lost their ring of truth. I mean, we hear so much misuse of speech. Remember the peacekeeping nuclear weapons and the surgical strikes and the collateral damage, you know. And We don't need to talk about politics. We're too close to that, right? 
or advertising. Buy this, it will make you happy. You will look better. People will love you. They will want to sleep with you. You'll walk down the street and, and handsome men and beautiful women will fall at your feet if you buy this. You know, it will make you rich. Your complexion will be entirely different, another color. Your hair will... I mean, all this stuff. It will make you healthy. You will live forever. We're surrounded by lies, actually. It's a very sad thing to see what's happened in that way to speech. So that's one reason. Um, this is from Hafiz. I mean, speech is such a powerful, or Hafiz, speech is such a uh, powerful vehicle when it is, when it is spoken truly. Um, Oh, wait a second. Where's the the poem? Come on. No, this is a good line, though. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. <laughs> That's not bad. Thank you, Hafez. Here it is. The great religions are the ships. Even the religions have lied to us, you know. They have in all different forms, told us things. The great religions are the ships. Poets are the lifeboats. Every sane person I know has jumped overboard. That's good for the poetry business, isn't it, Hafiz? So there's this possibility of our words, our poetry, really telling the truth, being the lifeboat. But of course, we are also hesitant because we might not be liked if we told the truth. I mean, look what happened to Jesus, you know? doesn't always end up so well. Or we become vulnerable in some way. Or if we express the truth, we also become foolish. Anybody in this room who's not foolish, raise your hand, please. I want to meet you. Isn't that a, it's a great thing to relax, huh? Here we are. So instead of all these habits and the surroundings of untruth, the possibility, if we are to live an awakened life, is to foster that speech that comes from our deeper knowing. Herein, someone avoids lying and abstains from it, They speak the truth, said the Buddha, are devoted to what's true, reliable, worthy of confidence, not a deceiver of others. Being at a meeting or amongst people or in the midst of their family or in society or in the court of the king and called upon and asked as witness, they tell what they know and what is true straightforwardly and simply. They never knowingly speak a lie for the sake of their own advantage or of another's advantage. They avoid tail-bearing and abstain from it. What they've heard here, they do not repeat there so as to cause dissension. And what they've heard there, they do not repeat here so as to cause dissension here. Thus they unite those that are divided, and their concord gladdens them. They delight and rejoice in words that bring harmony and benefit. That's the text on wise speech, to speak wisely, to refrain from causing harm, to refrain from false speech, from slander, gossip, tail-bearing. And the idea isn't to be moralistic about it. Oh, you're bad, you shouldn't do that. And it's really about compassion. It's being aware of the power of speech and using it to express what is conscious and what brings freedom and brings compassion from ourselves to another being. Think about the power of your words, the power of speech in this world. How many wars have started from words, even from different names of God, you know, as if one name was worth killing thousands of people over as opposed to another name. And if we reflect, those few words that I wish I hadn't said, 
because they stay for a long time. Or I wish I had said. And how healing they can be or how harmful they can be. And they can make a difference over a whole lifetime, certain words. There's this old story I haven't told for a long time of a Sufi healer who goes into a village where a young child is sick and the doctors have done what they could and still is very ill and all the people are gathered around with the village headman and the healer kind of parts them and goes over and lays his hand on the child and says a series of blessing prayers and then turns around and says, now this child will be well. And a man who's kind of cynical about all that, turns to the Sufi and says, what do you mean you, you know, say some mumbo-jumbo over this child as if that was enough to make them well? What, those kind of words make a difference in someone who's ill. And the master looked at him with everybody around and said, and what do you mean to question me like that? You are nothing but an ignoramus. You are a stupid, incredible fool. And he sort of dresses him up and down in front. Can't you all see this? And as he's talking like this, the man becomes angry and red and enraged and is just about to lash out at the Sufi. And he says, wait a second. If a few words of mine can turn you red and angry and make you about to lash out, why shouldn't a few other words have the power to heal? I still believe standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world, said Mahatma Gandhi. That was what my, he said, that's what my life was about, experiments in truth. I still believe standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in this world. The Buddha goes on after speaking of wise speech, of using the energy of speech to awaken, And he recommends speech which is well-spoken, blameless, beautiful, above reproach. (coughs) He says, in due season will I speak. You know, there is something about timing, isn't there? Truthfully will I speak. Gently, not harshly will I speak, conducive to harmony. With clear intention will I speak. And to their benefit will I speak being aware that these words are intended for the benefit of the others. Like breathing, speech comes in two directions, in and out, right? Two keys to working with speech, if you will. Out, and there the key is the intention in the heart. What is the intention from which we speak? And we'll get back to that. And in to listen with the heart, to to really listen. Story. Two trucks were standing back to back and a truck driver was struggling to get a huge crate from one truck to the other. A passerby, seeing his desperate situation, volunteered to help. So the two of them huffed and puffed and struggled for a long time with no result at all. I'm afraid it's no use, panted the passerby. We'll never get it off this truck. Off, yelled the driver. Good God, I don't want it off. I've been trying to get it on. (laughs) You laugh, don't you? But, you know, I think men are from Mars and women are from Venus or Deborah Tannen's book, You Just Don't Understand. They have sold something like 10 or 20 million copies, second only to the Bible. I mean, Somebody said that the whole idea of human communication is an oxymoron, right? No such thing. I was looking in this little book my daughter gave me called What Women Say About Men. One woman, I think it's Mae West, who wrote, if you talk about yourself, he'll think you're boring. If you talk about others, he'll think you're a gossip. If you talk about him, he'll think you're a brilliant conversationalist. And then there's uh, women speak because they wish to speak, whereas a man speaks only when driven to speech by something outside himself, like, for instance, he can't find any clean socks. (laughs) Oh, well. 
It is prejudice, but it's funny too. We actually know when someone speaks and we're listening, we know when those words come from a place of truth. And we also know when we're speaking, if someone's really listening to us. And it's a sense of feeling, a, a connectedness that's there. What does it mean to really listen to another human being? That kind of listening is somehow with our body, with our ears and our eyes, with our heart as well as our mind. It's a quality of true mindfulness, of bringing that attention to another. There's a quality of respect in it and compassion to really want to know, what is this person saying? And we know what it feels like. We already have this wisdom in us. We forget it sometimes, but we do know it. I remember being with Krishnamurti when he was giving a lecture in um, Ojai under the trees at the Ojai Foundation 20 or 25 years ago. And he was just seated on this one little tiny chair on a stage, this little hard-backed wooden chair. And there were, you know, a thousand people under these a live oak trees. It was a very beautiful setting. He had a little white canopy over his head. And this particular day he gave a long lecture on the nature of death and letting go of the past and being absolutely free in the moment and so forth. And he'd finished lecturing the morning and afternoon. And he said, I was thinking of going on a bit this afternoon and this evening on how to live a life of freedom after going on this whole thing about death and so forth. Um, should I go on? Everyone said, yes, yes. He said, have you, have you been listening? And they said, oh, yes, yes. He said, are you, are you not tired? No, no, we're not tired. He put his head down and then for a minute and then he looked up and he said, you're not tired? Then you haven't been really listening. <laughs> said, if you were really listening today, you would be tired. <laughs> It was really a great mom sort of chastising us. He said, no, there's something so mysterious that's there to be listened to, and you have to listen for that. Not the words, but what's behind the words. There was a man um, who went to a Hasidic master because there was a lot of trouble in his marriage. And the master said, to help, I suggest one simple practice, go home Sit down quietly and listen to your spouse and listen to every word she says really carefully. So he did for a couple days and came back and said, didn't work. You know, we're still a lot of conflict. And the master said, one further instruction. I want you to go home with your spouse and sit down and now listen to every word she isn't saying. Listen to what's not said behind all those other words. This is from Thomas Merton. I like this passage, especially to read it now in the um, California winter rainy season, because more rain is coming this week, I think. The rain I'm in is not like the rain of the cities. It fills the woods with an immense and confused sound. And I listen because it reminds me that the whole world runs by rhythms that I have not yet learned to recognize. I came out to this cabin in the rain, and now think of it, all that speech pouring down, selling nothing, judging nobody, drenching the thick mulch of dead leaves, soaking the trees, filling the gullies and crannies of the woods with water, washing the hillsides. What a thing it is to sit absolutely alone in the forest at night, cherished by this wonderful, unintelligent perfectly innocent speech, the most comforting speech in the world, the talk that rain makes over the ridges and watercourses and hollows. Nobody started it, and nobody's going to stop it. It will talk as long as it wants this rain, and as long as it speaks, I am going to listen. That's quality that we know when we are present and mindful of really listening 
for as long as it needs to happen. In that way, there are two modes of communication. We've talked about them here before. One is the mode of protection, where you're not really listening, you're just worried about what's going to be said or what your position is or how to get your point across or how to get, you know, that person to do what you want and there's blame or fear or attachment or something. You've got a program. Do you know what it's like to be in conversation with somebody who has that? The other, instead of being defended or protection or trying to make something, is the mode of learning of listening not in order to get your answer in or to figure it out or one-up somebody, but to really understand what do they have to say. And, and it's so interesting because that intention underlies true communication so that you can have the simplest phrase, what did you mean? And depending on the slight variation of the tone that you say it, what did you mean? can be an insult. What did you mean? You know, and that person will close down immediately because you're judging them. Or you can say, what did you mean? And really want to know what they meant. And those very same words become a doorway of opening and communication. The key to listening and to speaking wisely is the intention. Is our intention to learn, to discover, to hear something that we haven't understood. And when we have the words come out of our mouth, what is the intention behind this speech? And we do all this talking. When you meet somebody and you go into a whole rigmarole, what is your intention? We wave our arms, we tell about our vacation, you know, we talk about where we're going or what we're going to do or what we need or what's happened or whatever. What is our intention mostly when we meet people? Sometimes it's really very simple. We just want to say, Hi, I'm in here. Are you in there? Hello. Just want to make a little contact. It's good to see you again. And we go talking about, you know, the weather or the sports or the, the politics or, or whatever it happens to be when we're really just wanting to make contact. Sometimes we just want to say, I love you to somebody. But, you know, that's a little too much to say. So we go in some other rigmarole. It's helpful to sense inside, what is it that I'm bringing to this conversation? What do I really want to say? It's also interesting to notice when we talk a lot about other people. That's that part of wise speech where the Buddha cautions against tail-bearing that brings dissension. And I like to tell this story of Joseph Goldstein, who's been my teaching partner for many years and friend. Um, when he was first starting to work with the practices of awakened speech, he decided that he would not talk about any person that he knew, any third person that he knew, when they weren't present, just as an experiment for a month. He said it was amazing. 90% of my speech was eliminated, (laughs) made for such a simple life. And so it becomes interesting just to look at how much time we spend with our words on what particular topics. What would it mean to treasure our speech, to speak like a Buddha? One old master um, who was a Sufi master, who was also a mime that I met years ago, He said that in his tradition it was believed that when you were born you were only given a certain measure of words and so you had to take care with them and not use them all up. What would it mean to speak wisely? Well, even though I said it's important to be able to speak truthfully from the heart, it doesn't mean that all our speech has to be this kind of deep, profound, heartfelt you know, communication. It's fine also to talk about, you know, the news or sports or the weather or things like that. In fact, I remember at the end of one retreat, people had been silent for a long time when we were practicing these exercises of mindful speech and listening and so forth. And people were quite open and very heartful. And after a while, I heard somebody say, came up to me and they said, you know, if I hear one more heartful thing, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) 
you know. I just want to find out how the giants did while I was sitting. Or I want to find out, you know, this or that. And I mean, there's a place for it. But there's also a place just to have the pleasure of communication. So I don't mean to get all kind of self-conscious about it. Also, sometimes, as I've, as I've said here before, um, it, it's necessary to speak in not such a nice way. I don't mean, you know, or the Buddha doesn't mean that you can't be very strong when it's called for, both in situations of injustice um, or things that need to be attended to. I tell the story of when our house was being um, remodeled, you know, the remodeling kind of stories, and um, the contractor who had come, who I, who I liked quite a lot. But anyway, we had this contract. We were going to go and travel, and I was going to teach retreats elsewhere. We were supposed to be away and then come back, and he was going to do all this work, and it wasn't getting done. It, and, and we were about to go away, and I knew he was way behind. I kept saying, you know, you got to do this. The roof has to get on. You've got to do all this stuff. And I'm back and forth and trying to get it done, and, and nothing was happening. I was getting so frustrated trying in this nice Buddhist way. Finally, one morning we were about to go on the trip. I got really um, worried and upset, and I just lay, lit into him, and I said, God damn it, you promise you that's in the contract, and you get your guys over here, and you know, or I'm going to haul your ass to court, and this is, I mean, really, I was really into it. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, you, you want it done, I see. Yeah. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get my other crew over here in the morning. And then I realized, oh, it was just, I didn't speak the right language. I was not speaking contractorese, right? And once I got the language right, he wasn't insulted. He said, oh, you want it done? Sure, cool, I'll get it over. You know. Sometimes it's necessary to tell the truth to power, as it said. Not in this, I don't mean in this example of the contractor, but I mean it, against the exploitation or the racism that's so prevalent in our society or the injustice that we see around us. Sometimes that's what's necessary, and it takes very strong speech. But at the same time, again, as Martin Luther King said, never succumb to the temptation to be bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using the words and the weapons of the heart of love underneath it all. Which is to say, as we act, even if it's very powerfully, to stay connected with the heart. And even in anger, because sometimes there's a place for the expression of anger. it's very helpful before we, you say something that's angry to look inside and A, sense what's your motivation, what is your intention, and also to see what brings the anger about in us. Because if you look, once you get all upset and angry, at least when I look, underneath very often is hurt or fear or something like that. You know? And if I can express this deeper feeling that I'm afraid when this happens, or I feel very hurt by that, or whatever it is, that person gets kind of interested to hear, oh, I'm afraid, or I'm hurt. But if I say, you did that, and, uh, and so forth, and I don't say that I'm really afraid what the consequences of that will be, or how that hurt me, or might hurt someone else, um, it doesn't make for such an effective communication. You understand. So it's not that there isn't a place for it, but it sure helps to know what is the experience in the heart that brings that anger about. Why speech? It's the practice giving voice to what we know, to the wisdom that's there in us. To do so requires letting go of a particular kind of pride, and that is of trying to be right. We love to be right. I myself have been known to enjoy that, especially in my family. Having a teenage daughter helps a great deal, kind of straighten me out from that. Instead of being right, it's to listen, to listen to what's before us and what's in front of us without being so afraid of what's true, 
I haven't read from this book in a long time. I used to read from a children's letters to God. Lots of people have seen it. This is from a different edition of it. Just two little letters. Dear God, this is from some eighth, eight-year-old or six, seven-year-old. Dear God, what is it like when you die? Nobody will tell me. I just want to know. I don't want to do it. <laughs> Your friend, Mike. <laughs> and then this one. Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but try to be fair. <laughs> Sylvia. Right? If you listen to them, I mean, even though there's a lot of humor in it, there's also some strange quality of wanting to know the truth. What is it like when you die? You know, Or what about men and women or boys and girls? I and mean, there's something honest in those questions. Because there's a way that we do want to know what's true. We really do. And to learn to speak what's true in our relationships, in our family, in our community, um, to stand up for what's true, to want to know what's true, is really an act of compassion. Because until we know, we can't really awaken. And if we're around anyone who speaks the truth, who's known for that, I mean, you have friends, people you know, who speaks the truth with compassion. I don't mean the kind of brutal honesty, because that's not so helpful either. Who speaks truth with mercy. It is such a wonderful gift to be around someone. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, people would come to him, and the reason they loved to come all the way out to this distant forest monastery is he would look at people and he would say the most honest things. And he didn't care whether they liked him or didn't like him. He wasn't trying to, you know, get anything from them. He just would talk about life as it was, you know, and speak to them, listen to their questions and speak to them really honestly. And it was so refreshing to have somebody tell the truth. Even to speak of what's difficult or painful brings a certain beauty to life because it needs to be given a voice. And in truth, many, many have given their lives for the privilege of free speech. So many. In mindfulness and compassion, we are offered the possibility of truly free speech, that speech which expresses our freedom and that speech which also invites others to be truthful and free. Now, truth to tell, it also needs practice, patience, a kind of honoring of our words and a willingness um, when it doesn't work to say, you know, that didn't work so well. Let me try that again. <laughs> um, that's why we do, why, why meditation is called practice. Um, we do understand deeply, but we have to still practice it. And yet, it can transform a human life to speak what's true, to take care with our words. Better than a thousand hollow words is one word that brings peace, said the Buddha. Better than a thousand hollow verses is one verse that brings peace. Better than a hundred hollow lines <coughs> is one line of the truth that brings peace. It is better to conquer yourself than to win a thousand battles and to express that truth in the world is a great blessing. Let's just sit for a minute, do a little reflection. First, just coming back to this moment of embodied presence, the breath, the body seated here, the awareness and space of just this moment, 
And now, as a reflection, let yourself remember some situation in your life, it can be one you're still involved in, where wise speech is really difficult for you, where it's either difficult because you haven't said enough of something, or difficult and you're caught in it in some way. Let yourself picture, remember, imagine some situation of difficulty with right speech. And as you're there remembering it, picturing who you're with, what's going on, imagine any way you can, picture, think of, quite simply, that some wonderful wise being like the Buddha or the goddess of compassion, Tara, Kuan Yin, comes along, just as you're in the middle of this situation, and stands next to you, puts their hand on your shoulder or your body somewhere, very kindly comes up and leans over and whispers in your ear a few words of advice of how you might approach this situation. Let yourself imagine, sense, picture, what is the goddess of compassion or the compassionate Buddha advise you in how to speak or act in this situation. And then if you want them to demonstrate how they might handle it, let them show you a little bit. Imagine them talking to this person. And they finish up showing you how they might handle it. You, they bow to you and you bow back, thanking them for the advice. And come back just here with their words of advice or whatever that image or sense might be. Now we have a few more minutes tonight, so I would like to ask you to do something with whatever came in that image, which we haven't done in a long time because people like to come and sit quietly after a busy day and so forth. I would like you to turn in a moment to someone sitting near you so that you're partnered. And if it has to be three, just because of the way the chairs are or something, um, that would work okay too, better too. And we will take about 10 minutes what I want you to do is to sit quietly at first, not to start to speak, just to sit in the presence of this person, know that you're going to speak and you're going to listen, and speak about anything that you might have learned in that situation that you imagined of how you might do it, or what the Buddha or the goddess of compassion might have suggested or demonstrated, or anything from this teaching of right or wise speech that might be important to you and then listen to what they say. Um, and it's just a way of practicing wise speech and giving voice. Now the important thing is, it's not that you're gonna be self-conscious and super mindful. To be aware simply means that you're present as you listen and that you notice what happens as you talk. And it might be that you're nervous because you don't know this person. Or it might be that the words are awkward or the, they're not awkward. To be mindful is simply to notice that with compassion, without judgment. So let's practice a little bit. Turn to someone. Can, and sit just for a moment, a few seconds quietly. This is not like looking in their eyes, some soulful Sufi stare or something. This is a friendly conversation. And then a few minutes 
sharing about what you know about wise speech, because you do know. What did the Buddha tell you, or what do you know yourself? Go ahead. Three or four or five minutes each. One more minute. Finish up. silence, finish up. You can thank your partner in some way, acknowledge them, and then come back to sitting for a moment just still. Come back to sit, feel the blessedness of peace, of stillness. All that energy in the room, in your body, let it be there. Be really big and spacious. Open yourself. And then let the silence be like opening the gates and the windows and doors and a big breeze move through all those words and carry them away back to the stillness of the breath and the heart. Let yourself imagine if you were to take this capacity for compassionate and wise speech and really fulfill it in your life, how that would be for you. Let's end with a different sound, a little bit more harmonious than all those many words. Simply the chant of the word, the seed syllable, uh, ah, which is the syllable that means to open or release or let go, to make space for. And so we'll sing that sound, ah, for a bit, and you can feel the vibrations of that speech as it moves in your body and then we'll go out into the winter evening. Ah, ah, add harmony, ah, 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 ah. 
And may there be a stillness and compassion in your heart from which your words arise. Take care this week ahead. Um, and may it be filled with blessings. Thank you. Also, I'm supposed to remind you that next week there will not be a dinner before the Monday night talk. I think because we're starting the two-month retreat, the kitchen has to get organized for that. So. Thank you for your generous generosity. Thanks for putting the chairs away, those who can help. And drive carefully out there with all those cars. Drive politely. <laughs>